0: Good morning, welcome to Horizon, we're so glad you're joining us, we continue this morning in our plotline series, uh, studying um, some great books of literature, we're going to see Chad's take on yet another classic here, let's take a look together.
1: Chad, Chad. Uh, I hate to interrupt your movie-watching, but we've got to shoot this week's video for the plotline series.
0: We are, we are summarizing the plot to Robinson Crusoe. Well, I am not just movie-watching. I am doing research, and I am convinced that without Robinson Crusoe, the Hollywood industry as we know it wouldn't even exist. Not sure I follow you. <laughs> well, literally every Hollywood screenwriter... Owes their livelihood to this novel. It, like all their plot points come directly from Robinson Crusoe. It's literally been redone hundreds of times. Hundreds of times? Ah. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I can think of a few.
1: The uh, castaway, uh, okay. Swiss family Robinson. Mm-hmm. Gilligan's Island?
0: Uh, (laughs) No, no, many, many more. In fact, tell you what, i got a plot summary right here for the novel. You read that, and for every sentence, I'll give you a Hollywood plot that owes its origin to that book. Okay. Be my guest.
1: A student wants to leave home to seek his fortune. Uh, Road trip. uh, He argues with his parents. Scream. Who wants him to become a lawyer? The verdict. In defiance, he goes to sea anyway. Rebel out of cause. <laughs> Traveling with a friend, Crusoe's ship is thrashed in a squall. The perfect storm. And though he nearly dies, he eventually earns some money, goldfinger, and heads back out to sea, seeking even more. Risky business. His his second voyage <clears> isn't as successful. The ship is raided by bandits. Pirates of the Caribbean. One, two, three, four, five, (laughs) infinity. And Crusoe is enslaved by an African dictator. Prince of Egypt. On a fishing trip, he manages to break free from his captors. The Great Escape. Goes to Brazil and starts his own profitable plantation. Out of Africa. Despite these disasters at sea, he embarks on yet another ocean voyage. Clueless. Sure enough, the vessel is also wrecked in a brutal storm. Titanic. And Crusoe is the sole survivor of the expedition... castaway, Home alone. Despite the harsh conditions and threat of starvation... Uh, Hunger Games. Crusoe vows to survive. Die hard. Uses spare parts from the ship's wreckage to build a shelter... Mm, uh, The Lego Movie. And he begins recording his activities in a journal. Bridget Jones' Diary soon teaches himself farming skills, including tending a herd of wild goats. Goat busters!
0: Goat busters. Don't quibble, Tom. I'm out a roll.
1: Crusoe learns to make candles, grow wheat, and studies the Bible. Ten Commandments. He trains a parrot to talk. Uh, Dr. Doolittle. And drinks medicinal tea that causes him to hallucinate. Dazed and confused. In a dream, he sees an angel. Uh, it's a wonderful life. And realizes God has spared his life for a purpose. Bruce uh, Bruce Almighty. Crusoe encounters a band of dangerous cannibals... Invasion of the body snatchers... Uh, fights them off with his rifle... Lethal weapon... Bravely saves one of their would-be victims... Uh, big Hero 6... Whom he befriends and names Friday. Uh,
0: fr- Friday Night Lights.
1: Hang on, hang on. I, I gave you Goatbusters, but... Uh, Friday Night Lights, that's, that's a football movie. <laughs> uh, Freaky Friday.
0: Hmm. Friday the 13th? Uh, Saturday Night Fever? Saturday Chad. <laughs> uh, I- I- Ice Cube was in a movie called Friday...
1: Obscure, but alright. Mm.
0: Right.
1: Mm. Uh, Crusoe begins to mentor Friday, teaching him English and educating him about civilized life. Deadpool Society. And Crusoe and Friday have a series of violent clashes with the cannibals. Uh, Fight Club. One day, a suspicious looking ship appears and anchors just offshore. Uh, Cutthroat Island. Crusoe rescues the ship's captain, whose crew have overtaken him. Mutiny on the Bounty. Crusoe boards the ship and sails home to England.
0: Uh, Return of the Jedi. Seriously. I need at least one Star Wars reference.
1: Crusoe learns that his Brazilian plantations have become profitable and is now a wealthy man.
0: Uh, The color money.
1: He meets a young lady, gets married, and has a family.
0: Fifty first dates, love story, 27 dresses, hangover, uh, she's having a baby, uh, father bride one, father bride two.
1: Despite his newfound wealth, Crusoe reflects on his survival experience and knows true happiness is found in family, friendship, and his relationship with God.
0: Transformers, one, two, three, four, five... (laughs)
1: Well done, Chad. You were on fire. Yeah, uh, some like it hot. <laughs> uh, you can stop now. Unstoppable. Uh, Chad, you're very good at this, but it's, it's over.
0: Star Trek, uh, The Search for Spock, uh, Return of the Jedi, uh, Empire Strikes Back, The Usual Suspects, and Guardians
2: of the Galaxy 1, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Captain America. You know, the book, Robinson Crusoe, is the story of a young man who is desperate, he's desperate to set sail and live a life of adventure. But it's also the story of uh, a young man who is unwilling, he's a wayward son, unwilling to listen to the advice of his father. You know, there's not much a dad wouldn't do for his son. But, But how far will a dad go? Are there limits to a dad's love? I remember when my daughter, Laura, was about four or five years old, I took her to McDonald's and I told her to stand beside me as we waited in line. When it came our time to order, I looked her way to see what she wanted to order, but she wasn't there. I looked around. I couldn't find her. I asked the people in line behind me, did you see a little blonde-headed girl? They shook their heads, No. Well, I started searching around McDonald's. I mean, I looked all over the restaurant. I couldn't find her. And then it occurred to me, what if somebody walked off with her? So I headed out the door in the parking lot. I called for her. No Laura. I went around the building to the other side where there was a parking lot. I couldn't find her anywhere. I came back in the building. I searched the restaurant one more time. I mean, by now, my heart is racing. The adrenaline is pumping. I'm thinking the worst when it hit me. The bathroom! So I ran to the women's bathroom, pushed the door open as a lady was coming out, which was a little disturbing. I didn't explain myself. I just yelled past her, Laura, you in there? Now, Robinson Crusoe is a young man who also doesn't want to listen to his father. I mean, desperate for this life of adventure, he boards a ship for London. The first night of his voyage, they encounter a storm. Uh, Crusoe uh, attributes it to God's Well, retribution for not obeying his dad. He promises God that night, I'll go back to York and I'll listen to my dad if you'll let me survive the storm. Well, the next morning when he wakes, you know, very much alive and intact, well, he forgets about his promise to God and continues on his voyage. About, oh, a week later, they encounter Now, a second storm, a worse storm. In the storm, the ship is lost. Well, the crew and the passengers are all rescued. And when the captain of that lost vessel hears about Crusoe's waywardness, well, he attributes it to God's retribution and commands Crusoe to head back home to his father. But instead, Crusoe boards a ship for Africa. When he returns about a year and a half later, well, he's got money in his pocket, and as a result, he sets out on a second adventure to the dark continent. This time, his ship is intercepted by Moroccan pirates, and Crusoe is taken captive and enslaved by the Moroccan captain. He serves faithfully for two years when he engineers his escape by stealing one of the captain's smaller boats and he sails it south, uh, south of Africa down the coastline until he intercepts uh, a Portuguese ship. He trades his stolen ship for passage on the Portuguese ship and that's when he discovers he's headed to Brazil. Now, while in Brazil, he ends up buying some land he develops a a successful plantation but he, he always wonders what life would have been like with his father back in York but he is still desperate to make a name for himself and he wants to make his plantation profitable so he gets passage on board another ship headed to Africa in order to buy slaves, in order to run his plantation. Uh, But he encounters a hurricane on the way that blow him into the Caribbean where the ship wrecks. And Crusoe is the sole survivor on an island that becomes his prison for the next 23 years. He aptly names it the Island of Despair. Now it's while on this island that he has a number of adventures that if you read the book, most of the book is about. He he has a great time, but he often thinks of life with his father back in England and what that must have been, what could have been like. Now, as you read the book, you come across his journal writings. Now, from time to time, he pauses and he makes lists of positives and negatives. Good things he has done and bad things he has done. Uh, like a bookkeeper keeping a ledger of credits and debits, as if in some way to justify his behavior before a accounting, divine bookkeeper God. Now, did you know Jesus tells a similar story? It's a story about a young man who is not marooned on an island of of, uh, despair, but finds himself in a pigsty of despondency. But in Jesus' story, he paints a much different picture of what God must be like. In fact, his story begins this way. It says, a certain man had two sons, and the younger one said to them, uh, and, the younger, and the younger of them said to his father, uh, Father, give me the portion of the goods that falls to me. And he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions on prodigal living. Now, it seems though as though throughout Jesus' life, he has sought to scrape away the residue of misinformation and misunderstanding that tends to obstruct people's view of what God is like. I mean, we have a natural tendency to view God from our earthly perspective. Uh, psychologists, in fact, today will tell us that, that your picture of God comes from your relationship with your dad. If your dad was kind gracious and loving well you tend to see god as kind gracious and loving but but if your dad was angry vindictive and unforgiving well that's the way you tend to see god and jesus knows that how we see god will impact how we engage with his heavenly father so he tells a story and notice it begins with a request from a a younger son. Father, give me the portion of goods, meaning the part of your inheritance that falls to me. In other words, Dad, I want my inheritance right now. Now, the subject of inheritance is can, can be a, a touchy subject in a family. In fact, as we read this, we we're kind of appalled at the insensitivity, no, no the greed of this young man. I mean, you'd think his request would feel like a dagger in his father's heart. It's equivalent to say, hey, Dad, would you hurry up and die so I can get what's coming to me? I mean, how would your dad respond to a request like that? What would he do? What would he say? Dr. Kenneth Bailey, a professor of Near Eastern School of Theology in Beirut, Lebanon, tells a story of a Syrian fa- uh, farmer "...whose eldest son approached him one day and asked for his portion of the inheritance. Bailey said the dad slapped the son across the face. He drove him from the house and wouldn't let him back for five long years." So you need to understand that a bomb goes off in Jesus' story. And everyone listening is expecting this dad, this father, to strike the son across the face and throw him out of the house. But to everyone's shock and surprise, this dad grants his son's request. It says he divided to them his livelihood. Wow. So with inheritance in hand, I want you to notice the extent of this brash son's rebellion. It continues, he says, And not many days after the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country uh, and, and, and wasted his possessions with prodigal living, meaning extravagant living, wasteful living. So the first thing this young lad does is he converts his inheritance to cash, which by the way means he had to sell off the portion of the land that had come to him, the portion of the land that has been in his family maybe for generations. And to understand the impact of that, you need to realize in the Middle East, land is everything. I mean, just look at the Palestinian issue today. So after liquidating his assets, it says he leaves for a far country. And then it says that he wasted his possessions that it meant literally he scattered his father's money wherever he went and about the time his money runs out so does his luck I mean notice what happens next Jesus says but when he had spent all there arose a severe famine in the land and he began to be in want then when he and then he went and joined himself to a citizen of the of that country literally attached himself like a leech to a host so how do you get rid of a leech you make his environment as uncomfortable as possible and that's exactly what this landowner does it says so he sent him into the fields to feed swine and he gladly filled, would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. So he, he gives him the worst job he could think of, and that's feeding pigs. Now, I actually lived on a pig farm one summer. I mean, I've watered pigs, I've fed pigs, I've even castrated pigs. And so I speak from experience when I tell you there is no grosser, filthier, nastier animal than a pig. And for a Jewish boy, well, there's no more disgusting of job than caring for pigs. So you've got to know that the people listening to Jesus tell this story, they're there nodding their heads and going, yeah, yeah, that's what that boy deserves. But this is really not a story about rebellious people. It's actually going to turn out to be a story about a father's heart. I mean, a heart so compassionate that he wants rude and sensitive, defiant people to find their way back home. So notice what happens next. It says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. Now, in Daniel DeFore's book, we discover that Robinson Crusoe also has a moment of clarity. when he come, After a shipwreck, when he comes to grips with where he is and what landed him there, he ends up having some pretty interesting and wise insights. I want to read to you one of his insights. He says, I have since observed how incongruous and irrational the common temper of mankind is, especially of youth, We're not ashamed to sin, and yet we are ashamed to repent. Not ashamed of the actions for which they ought to justly be esteemed as fools, but are ashamed of returning, which only can make them be esteemed as wise men. It seems sometimes pride gets in the way of admitting that we were wrong. We we made a mistake. In fact, in Jesus' story, the young man he comes to a moment of clarity, but instead of admitting that he's wrong, he ends up developing a plan in attempts to try to work his way back into his father's good graces. I mean, do you remember what he said? Go on and highlight it. Oh. Well, I'll just read it here. Okay, he, he said, uh, I have sinned against heaven and you and no am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like your hired servant. Now, now, to really understand what's going on here with this request, you need to know that there are really three classes of slaves in Middle Eastern culture in the first century at this time. I mean, the first level is called the douloi. That's the Greek word. And it describes slaves who serve the family. They work in the house, sometimes even becoming members of the family almost. Uh, reporting to them uh, was the second level. They are the pedos. They are slaves in training. Uh, they're usually younger slaves. And then at the lowest level is the misthos. Uh They were, well, hired people who were forced to report to slaves. Now, that's the word used here in the text. I mean, I mean... Can you detect what this young man is doing? I mean, as he comes up with this plan, he's on his way home. He's probably rehearsing what he's going to say to his father. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me a doloy." No, he won't go for that. Okay, okay make me a paid-off. That That's not going to work either. Make me a mythos, yeah, I think he might go for that yeah i I, I think that's the ticket. you see in one sense, he confesses he 's confessing what he did is wrong, and that 's good, but uh, at the same time, do you see what he 's doing? He's trying to make restitution. He's trying to make amends for his mistake in in order to gain his father's favor. But this boy really doesn't understand the heart of his dad. You ever do that with God? You give into a temptation, maybe something you've given into a hundred times before. So you go to God and you You tell him you're sorry, you admit what you did was wrong, but it doesn't feel like enough, does it? So what do we do? Well, we we tend to make restitution. We we, we tend to make amends uh, in order to gain God's favor. Uh, We try to pay penance, if you will, uh, as if somehow your sacrifice is going to soften God's heart toward you. But like the young son in the story, we really don't understand the heart of the father, do we? So with plan in hand, he returns home and notice what happens. And he arose and came to his father and when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servant, Bring out the royal robes, put them on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring that fatted calf here. Kill it and let's eat and be merry. Now the father's response shocks everyone who's listening. He doesn't disown his son. That would have been expected. He doesn't shut him out of his heart. That, that would have been acceptable. Um, he's not only willing to win, to welcome him back into the family, but did you notice? The, the father has been waiting for the son to return. It says, and when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had Compassion. I mean, it must have been like a dream for that dad. Every day looking out the window to see if his son has returned, and then this day, could it be? He has his gait, he has his posture. It is, it's my son. And he says he felt compassion. Now, that word is the key to this whole story, I think. You see, when I realized Laura was lost, she was missing. I mean, I searched McDonald's from top to bottom. I mean, I was worried. I started thinking the worst. I mean, is she okay? I mean, did she wander off? Did someone take her? I mean, did she cry out for help and I didn't hear? I mean, who's going to be there to comfort my little girl? I was so filled with compassion. I mean, I searched the whole restaurant. In fact, after barging into the women's restroom uh, and disturbing that one lady, I went back and found another lady at a table. I said, get up. Would you go in there and look in every stall to see if a, a little girl named Laura is in there? I waited at the door for what seemed like an eternity. And when the woman emerged, she had a smile on her face. She said, no worries, Dad. Uh, She'll be out in just a minute. Just be patient. Oh, whoa, I was never so relieved in my entire life. Now, that's the idea behind this word, compassion. I mean, When used of God, I mean, it describes such a strong emotion that it means the inner parts of God have been moved with a uh, tenderness and affection toward us. Now, when the Bible says God is moved with compassion, what it's saying is that his gut is wrenched. His heart has been torn open, and the most vulnerable parts of him have been laid bare. You see, our feelings of compassion for a loved one only pale in comparison to God's feelings of compassion and affection toward us. I mean this story tells us of a father's love, but it's actually a picture of God's passion. His tender affection toward you. And by the way, did you notice when the son was too far away to be able to voice his com- concern or his plan to his father, the, the compassion of the father was already evident. The father takes off in a dead run in order to in- intercept the son. Now, what you need to know is that men in the Middle East don't run. In fact, The slower you walk, the greater it's considered that you are. Did you know that? I remember watching television when the emir of Kuwait uh, was reinstated after Desert Storm. It took him 15 minutes to walk off the plane and traveled just 10 yards to a microphone in order to address his people. Now, why? Because he was a great man. I mean, the whole time I'm watching, I'm an American, I'm thinking, Would you hurry up? Come on! Who do you think you are? Now, this dad, he ignores all social conviction. convention. I mean... He disregards the fact that his son smells like pig urine, and he showers this boy with hugs and kisses over and over and over again. And you, you, you need to know that this love of the heaven of this dad. Is beyond anything anyone listening to this story uh, could even imagine. And, And his actions, his actions were not based upon the son's confession. I mean, he acts out of a deep abiding love emanating from his heart. And I think it's that very action that is paradigm shifting in the mind of that young son. In fact, you can see the evidence in his confession. Look at it closely. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He stops short. Did you notice? He doesn't ask, Can I be a hired servant? Why? I think for the first time, he understands he can't earn his father's love. You see, your heavenly father loves you as you are, not as you ought to be, because None of us in this room are as we ought to be. God doesn't love you because of your good behavior. He doesn't love you because, well, you promised to live a better life. He loves you as you are. And did you notice how boundless this father's love is? I mean, he showers the boy with kisses and gifts. I mean, look look at that, the robe. It signifies birthright. The ring, well, it's a sign of authority. The sandals, they are a a symbol of sonship. And, of course, the fatted calf is a sign of celebration. I mean, robe, rings, Reeboks and ribeyes. All practical proofs of this father's extravagant, abounding love for his son. But, But the story doesn't end there. Remember, there's an older brother, and where the younger brother really sheds light on a, a father's love, the older brother sheds light on his patience. Look what it says. Now, the older brother was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called for one of his servants and asked these, what these things meant. And he said, your brother has come, and because he has received him safely and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he, the older brother, was angry and would not go in. Therefore, the father came out and pled with him. Now, the older brother has been in the field. Remember, he is the responsible, industrious brother. He's been running the family farm, lo, these many years. And he comes in and he hears music emanating from his house. He inquires and discovers his worthless younger brother has shown back up. And to make matters worse, pops killed the fatted calf. So he's angry, and he refuses to go in. And, you know, if we're honest, we kind of agree with the older brother, don't we? I mean, guilty people shouldn't get off scot-free, uh, let alone be rewarded for their rebellion. But but the problem is the older brother doesn't understand the father's heart either. You see, when the Bible says that God is gracious toward us, it, it doesn't mean God doesn't discipline us when we go astray now we, we have a way of thinking that life is found in the pursuit of pleasure and possessions and power so we end up missing what God has for us but by, by the way that that's why God has to disrupt our lives from time to time to cause us to loosen our grip on the things we think bring life but don't you see if our happiness in life is tied to things we can lose, then we're all vulnerable. So in the story, there, you need to know there was grace. There, there was grace working in the son's poverty. There was grace working in the stench of that pig pen. There was grace bringing this younger brother to his senses, opening his eyes to the love of the father, and you'll discover there is also grace working in the older brother as well. Notice how he addresses his father. Lo, these many years I have been serving you, literally slaving for you. And I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might be merry with my friends. Can you hear the voice of duty and obligation in his response? He goes on, but as soon as this son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. I mean, do you see it? The older brother is just like the younger brother. I mean, both think they can earn the father's love. Now, it's true that the older brother, he has been serving the father, and he served faithfully, but remember, he did it out of duty and obligation, And when you do that, it just results in pride and judgmentalism and self-righteousness, and that's why he's so angry. You see, neither brother understood they had the Father's love already. But what I want you to notice is the heart of this Father, because it's really the heart of God. It says, And the father said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is now found. You see, walking with God by faith... It means remembering that you are completely and totally adored by your heavenly Father. In spite of your failures, your flaws, your skeletons in your closet, uh, God says, I love you as you are. But he loves you too much to leave you there. You see, God's not that impressed with our duty of service and obligation like the older brother, and he's not impressed at all by our resolutions to do better in the future like the younger brother. God, what he wants is us to understand his heart for us. And by the way, understanding his heart will be a lifeline to you in the midst of difficulty and failure, like an infection in your knee that, persist for five years that won't go away. Our loss of eyesight in an eye so you can't read and study like you used to could. I mean, remembering that I am deeply loved by my Heavenly Father, it's like a breath of fresh air when faced with the reality of living life in a fallen world where bad things happen to good and bad people alike. So, in the story, there the father is. He stands open-armed, patiently waiting, calling this younger brother home to a party. So how will he respond? It doesn't say. It doesn't say. It's left for us to answer. So here's the question. When you think of your heavenly father, what do you think of? What comes into your mind? I mean, do you think of him as a divine accountant tracking debits and credits as you wait on the side for a positive outcome like Robinson Crusoe? Or do you think of him as a stern patriarch frowning at every bad word, looking for every opportunity to send you to your room like the older brother? Or maybe you see him as a preoccupied king, focused on more important matters than your needs, your wants, your desires, like the younger brother. Or it could be that you see him like a divine watchmaker, busy keeping the universe running, but disengaged with his creation personally. I mean, whether you're like Robinson Crusoe, the older brother or the younger brother, I mean, one thing is perfectly clear in this story and that is that God loves you. Not the person next to you, not not Billy Graham, not Mother Teresa, Uh, not the church, uh, not the world, or in some uh, general way, mankind. He loves you. Beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond Faithfulness and unfaithfulness, He loves you when you're at your best and when you're at your worst. I mean, God loves you without caution, regret, boundary, or breaking point. And the fact is, He can't stop loving you. Wouldn't you want to get to know a father like that?